Welcome to the Dimensions book series by K. Arwen. An extraordinary tale of an inner journey and a battle of good against evil. In this podcast, the heroine Kaya tells her own story from book one, The Awakening. Our journey begins on the Scottish Isle of Skye. Parallel realities interconnect and interweave. Step in and enter Dimensions. Eighteenth-century Scotland, and Meg is sitting in her cottage, writing in her diary. When you haven't written for a long time, it becomes, well, quite a challenge to begin again, to pick up a quill and show up on the, the page of my journal. I sense change, massive change, but I'm unsure how this change is going to show up. What I'm sure of, though, is that it's going to be destructive and people here in the village will suffer. I'm praying it won't involve violence, but how how can it not? With pressure from the English and, well, given our history of unrest, how can it not be another bout of tension that will explode into battle? I can't understand why there's so much demand to possess another people's land for resources. Instead, why can't there be an accord? Surely working in harmony and trading and sharing resources in a way that embodies respect and honour for each other's way of life is the best way forward. Perhaps being a mere woman, I'm naive, but I feel that men here, well, they have it all wrong. All warfare and the making of other people subservient in order to get what you want. Well, to me, it's bewildering. Yet, these are the times and this is what we face. I've decided to hide my journal under the loose slab by my hearth, for I fear it being found. There's no apparent reason for my fear, and it may be unfounded, but the unease, it won't diminish, and hiding my words is perhaps the only reason I allow myself to write them in the first place. Even as I write, I'm overcome with the sense of unease, as though there's something that I should be doing, and yet I haven't a clue what it is. I haven't seen Owen for days, a week or more, and that doesn't help. There's talk among the villagers that they're all going to be moved on because of the clearances. I'm so worried about the implications of a move for Morag. I'm certain she's too sick for change. And the upheaval caused by a move, well, I think it would see her demise, I'm sure of it. 
Meg closed her diary and sat staring at it. What was the point of writing these things down, really? It didn't solve anything. It could be argued that it made it worse for her, reminding her of her fears. Yet, although that was true, some somehow writing it also helped get her thoughts and fears out of her head and, as such, gave her some relief. She took her journal and, wrapping it in its oilskin cloth, placed it under the loose slab to, to the right of her fireplace. Perhaps her fears were unfounded. She picked up a piece of blue thread that she had woven into a ring and placed by the fire to smoulder. Placing the now charred thread in her hand, she rubbed it slightly and set it on the table. A shock of recognition flooded through her. There was no mistaking the pattern that the thread had made. She had done this procedure repeatedly now and the result was always the same. The thread spoke of doom and despair. She needed air. She needed the water. Leaving her cottage, she made her way down to the shoreline. The tide was nearly out. However, on part of the shore, the sea collected together behind a large pile of rocks, filling a rock pool and creating a natural swimming pool. This was one of Meg's favourite swim spots. Clambering over the slippery seaweed and rock, Meg found the place. The water looked dark and somewhat foreboding, but she didn't care. Shivering with the cold damp air, she discarded her clothing and slipped into the freezing water. The shock hit her instantly, ice-cold fingers seeming to penetrate her body, leaving pangs of pain. Yet she wouldn't move, not yet. She focused on her breathing. It had become fast and shallow with the cold. She made a conscious effort to slow and deepen her breath and sent that breath down through her body. Come on, Meg, she said to herself. Let it go. For a moment, her brain took her somewhere else, to a place far away. There were large white buildings and a deep sense of peace and calm. She saw a beautiful white horse running along a beach, and yet the beach appeared to be under the water. There were dolphins and fish. And then the image changed and she saw a river and an otter. The sky was blue above her and there was a blue kingfisher sitting on a branch that overhung the water. The cold of the water suddenly became unbearable and the image broke up. Opening her eyes, Meg leapt out of the water and reclaimed her clothes. She had gone blue with the cold and her fingers hurt as she struggled to lace the front of her dress. But she felt clearer and calmer, the water having taken away some of her tension and disturbance. She picked up a white shell and in her usual way kissed it before placing it in a chosen spot at the water's edge. Thank you, she whispered. Perhaps everything would turn out okay after all. In any case, there was nothing that she could do to change anything. She had no choice but to wait and see what was going to happen. Until then, she must continue as normal. She made her way back along the shore. First then, hot tea to warm her up after her dip. And then it was time she visited Morag. 
Perhaps Morag would have news of Owen. Travelling to the modern day. Hi, Kaya here. Waking up in my van. The light of the morning streaming in through the windows. It, it, makes, it makes it feel kind of magical. And I'm lying in my sleeping bag, gazing out across the water on the loch. It feels as though it's calling to me, drawing me in. There's nothing for it. I'm going to have to face the cold. And I feel light and happy as I walk across the beach to the water's edge and wade into the sea. The cold hits me instantly, but taking a deep breath, I crouch and shoot forward into the water, swimming out to where it's deep enough to dive under it. I take a deep breath and and dive, my hair swirling around me like the seaweed that's all around in this spot. It's funny, as I go deep, it's the same as it was the day before, and I can see under the water as clear as anything. It's super cool. I can see the fish darting among the seaweed, hardly believing I think that I can see them. And I explore following them like some giant sea creature until I run out of breath and then I have to return to the surface. I take another deep breath and dive down again, feeling totally at home. And it's funny now, as I, as I swim through the kelp, the fish, rather than swimming away from me, they seem to be, well, curious and swimming closer. One shoal of fish is swimming all around my hands and arms as though I'm one of them. I surface again. What must I look like, bobbing around on the surface with my long hair floating all around me? A naked woman swimming about in the sea. It's a good job no one can see me. I take another deep breath and dive back down to be with my new fishy friends. Unbeknown to me, a figure walks down the cliff path and onto the shore. From the track, he'd seen the woman getting into the sea and had waited for her to finish her dip. She clearly wanted privacy and given the Baltic temperature of the water, Leodolf hadn't reckoned that she'd be in the water for very long. He'd called his dog to sit beside him and waited. And waited. And waited. Yet the woman seemed determined to stay in the water. Not only that, but she appeared to have the ability to hold her breath for an uncanny length of time. Five minutes! Six minutes, nine minutes, he checked his watch. Perhaps it was malfunctioning. Leodolf was fascinated. How could anyone hold their breath for that amount of time, never mind in freezing Scottish waters? He was reminded of the Scottish stories of the Kelpies, people who belonged to the sea and who could appear to be human. Perhaps she was one of them, he smiled to himself. She looked human enough getting into the water and he didn't think that Kelpies had camper vans either for that matter. Either way, he couldn't sit and wait indefinitely. He'd got to get working on his current commission else he was going to get behind. 
So, standing, he continued down to the beach and walked along the sand with his dog, past where the woman was swimming. Not that she appeared to notice, unlike her two dogs. They tore at him and began to dance around his dog, Fraser. Fraser was an enormous dog that looked suspiciously like a wolf. And Fraser towered above the two smaller dogs, but they seemed unperturbed. Leodolf laughed as they tormented Fraser, trying to get him to chase them and play. Go for it, lad, he laughed, to which the great dog flew along the beach like the wind, with the two small dogs running flat out behind, trying in vain to catch him. You guys won't stand a chance, Leodolf said, as the two dogs circled back towards him panting. Fraser's not exactly a normal dog. He walked from the beach to the track that led along the grass where Kaya had left her van, towards the trees and his house, which was situated just further round in the bay. Brr. I suddenly realise how cold I am in the water. I wonder how long I've been here. I start to swim for the shore and glancing along the beach I... I don't see any sign of anyone, so I, I wade from the water to where I've left my towel and wrap it around myself, pick up my clothes and walk back to the van. I'm walking across the grass and, and suddenly I come to a standstill. The grass is damp from the morning dew and there's clear footprints imprinted. One set is, is a set of boots. Given the size, probably a man's boot and the other is a dog. But what on earth? What kind of dog? I'm stunned at the size of the footprints. Surely not even an old English sheepdog would have prints as big as that. I look at them for a moment puzzled, trying to make a connection. But I'm shivering violently and I need to get warm and I hurry across to the van to get dry and dressed. I soon feel warmer and pulling a second jumper over my head, I glance at my watch for the time. An hour? I've been in the water for an hour. How could that be possible? I look back across at the water trying to comprehend how I'd been able to stay in it for so long. Sure, the cold had got to me eventually, but an hour? I shake my head, suddenly feeling ravenous. Camp stove coffee and a cold croissant just isn't going to suffice. I call the dogs into the van and head back inland to a cafe that I spotted yesterday. I pull into the car park and, locking up the van, I, I walk into the cafe. It's small and quaint and it feels rustic. It's got a nice kind of homely, farmhouse, kitcheny kind of a feel. I really like it. There's a, an older lady with greying hair who's setting up the counter and she's placing fresh croissants that smell divine and pastries into a glass cake stand. Morning, dear, she says with a smile as I enter. What can I get you? 
A very large and very hot coffee, please, and something to eat equally as hot, I reply. You've been swimming, she laughs. How about some porridge? Or one of these croissants? They're still warm. Both, I say with a grin. I pay and sit down on one of the the two-seater couches whilst the lady makes my, my order ready. Behind me, there's a notice board and and I scan the advertisements absentmindedly. Some are for tourist trips and boat trips. But what catches my eye is one that advertising caravans for rental. I I begin to, to note down the number. They're nice caravans if that's what you're wanting, the lady says as she passes me a croissant on a plate. But, well... If you don't mind me mentioning it, I've got a cottage that's vacant if you want something a bit more, well, solid around you. Really, I reply, that'd be perfect. I'm Wilma, the lady says. The cottage isn't far from here. How long are you wanting to stay? Well, I tell Wilma that I'm a writer and that I haven't exactly got a plan and a fixed time frame. Oh, that's no bother. That's okay by me, she replies. Stay for as long or as little as you like. I tell you what, pop by and see if you like it. I can tell you where the key is if you're interested. Well, that's great, I say. There's a noise in the car park and I glance out the window and there's a tourist bus just pulling in. Wilma hears the engine and and sees the bus too as the as it manoeuvres into a parking space. It looks like you got here in the nick of time, she says with a smile. I tell you what, find yourself a seat near a table and I'll bring the coffee and the porridge over, else it looks like you may not get a table at all. I walk over to a small table by the window and watch the people get off the bus. They all begin to pile into the cafe, all of them with their mobile phones out. Some of them are taking pictures, but for the most part, they're busy logging into the cafe Wi-Fi in order to catch up on their calls and messages. The queue at the counter grows and some of them begin to harass Wilma. What's the Wi-Fi code? A lady asks in an officious voice. And she doesn't even wait for Wilma to respond, but turns to her husband. Did you get the code, Albert? She continues. Yeah, he replies in a drawling voice. But it's not working. What did you say it was? He asks Wilma. It's on the bottom of the menu, dear, Wilma replies in a cheery voice. Albert's wife throws her a cold stare before critically examining the menu. I personally wouldn't call this a menu, she says sarcastically. There's not exactly much choice, is there? It's just the breakfast menu, Wilma replies, keeping her voice steady. She turns to another tourist who's jostling to be served. I'll be with you in a jiffy. Not enough choice and not enough staff. Honestly, these places, Albert's wife criticises, determined to be provocative, it seems. Wilma Blesser starts to get flustered and I feel sorry for her. I walk across to the counter to collect the coffee and the porridge that she's left there for me. 
I'm immediately accosted. Hey, don't you push in. I was here first, Albert's wife says in an aggressive voice. I take a deep breath and put a smile on my face. I'm just collecting my coffee and breakfast. I've already paid. Well, you shouldn't push in, comes the response. I just give her a half smile and collecting my breakfast, put it on a tray and decide to sit outside. And as I do, Albert's phone suddenly starts to make that same high-pitched squealing noise. And I glance at him as I pass by. He seems to become cross and even more agitated, grumbling that his phone and the Wi-Fi isn't working properly. And then, simultaneously, some of the other mobile phones begin to admit the same noise too. I just stand staring for a, a moment, looking at all the people. The effect is almost instantaneous. They begin to push and shuffle at the counter, abusing Wilma for being too slow. And others begin to clear the shelves and of the cakes and sandwiches and complaining to Wilma that there's not enough variety or the quality isn't good enough. And then they begin to bicker with each other about their seating on the coach and other grievances that they've obviously been harbouring. I roll my eyes at Wilma and hurriedly leave the cafe and I sit at one of the wooden tables outside. I haven't been there very long when Wilma appears at the side door and crosses over to where I'm sitting. Oof, I need some fresh air, she says with a sigh. What a morning! I smile. They're not exactly full of the joys of spring, are they? Are you okay? Wilma returns a smile. Oh, I'll be fine, she says. It takes more than that to break an old crock like me. I'm just glad that I haven't got a mobile phone. Blasted things. The noise that they make. So, you've noticed the squealing noise too, I ask. Well, only recently, Wilma replies. But yes, at first I thought I was getting tinnitus. The way it makes people behave. Although, it only seems to affect people who don't seem to hear it. I look at her thoughtfully. Is that right? If people hear it, then they don't seem to be affected. Well, you can hear it, replied Wilma, and it hasn't affected you, has it? No, I reply, that's true. I've been hearing and seeing, well, a lot of strange things lately. This morning, for instance, on the grass near the beach, I saw enormous dog prints. They looked as though a dinosaur had made them, I say with a laugh. Wilma smiles. Oh, that'll be Fraser. Fraser? Yeah, Leodolf's dog, Fraser, Wilma says. Leodolf came from Canada. He's been here, hmm, I don't know, about three years. And he bought Fraser with him. He's enormous. Looks like a wolf, but even then, I've never seen a, a dog nor a wolf look quite like him. You didn't see Leodolf this morning then? Uh, no, I reply. Hmm. Well, I guess if you're staying local, then you will. Here's the directions to the cottage. Go and take a look and if you like it, then just settle in. I'll call round later and we can sort out all the terms and bits and pieces. 
Wilma hands me a piece of paper with directions and the number of the cafe. Just give me a call if you're wanting anything. Otherwise, I'll see you later. Oh, thanks, Wilma. That's great, I reply, taking the paper from her. Oh, it's no bother, she replies. Be nice to have you stay. I best go and clear the tables for round two of the morning. I think it's going to be one of those days. And she laughs as another bus starts to turn it into the car park. Going to the subterranean underground base. Grisilior marched into the main hub and glanced into the subchamber. The Matrix Lord was standing staring at the chess set. He spoke without taking his eyes from the board. Has the crystal been inserted into the device successfully? Well, it's been inserted, Grisilior reported. It's transmitting the spores sporadically, but the device isn't working correctly. It could be that we just need the delivery from the Cube Collective before it can reach full capacity. The Collective have been delayed. It took them longer than expected to capture the Great Dragon. Grisilior raised his eyebrows. And have they? he asked. Yes, now, replied the Matrix Lord. The last and strongest links were within the Isle of Sky. Once they were disrupted, it fell. They've connected the dragon to two of the same devices that are due for delivery to the base. The great dragon will fought your parasite in the same way as man. Grisilior flinched. That word. Always that same word. And when the great dragon falls, then the other lay dragons will fall. Earth will be ours, he said. No, the Matrix Lord replied. Earth will be mine. Don't overstep your position, Grisilior. The ley lines will be corrupted. There'll be nothing to stop the skinwalker parasite from infecting all humanity and extending into the interconnecting dimensions. Grisilior regarded the Matrix Lord with a blank expression. He could play that game. He could play the part of being subservient if it served his cause. He nodded his head. And the Cube Collective, you can trust them to break the dragon, he asked. They will succeed, there's no doubt, the Matrix Lord replied. But I do want a skinwalker to go and oversee the situation. The Cube Collective answer only to themselves. Send Arcuricus. Very well, Grisilior said. The Cube Collective have set a third transmission device alongside the Great Dragon, the Matrix Lord continued. It matches the energy that draws the Shadow Men. As the Dragon weakens, the Shadow Men will be amplified. They're drawn to tension and negative states. Their presence will aid us in creating a fertile ground for your parasite to flourish. Then, as soon as the Cube Collective device is synced with the crystal, mankind will fall. Grisilio nodded soon. 
soon the skinwalkers would step into their own power. Regardless traced an energy signature from the crash site, he reported. It led to a human. A female on the Isle of Skye. The Matrix Lord froze. The Isle of Skye, he questioned, his voice like iron. Yes, Grisilior confirmed. I've concluded that it was a coincidence that she came through the portal by mistake. The Matrix Lord suddenly stood enraged. He reached out his hands toward Grisilior and sent a blue electric fire towards him, dissolving Grisilior's human form entirely. The Matrix Lord continued to send the fire for a moment before letting his hands fall to his side. I don't need you to conclude anything. Do not get above your station, the Matrix Lord said in a voice that cut the air like like a sword through ice. He regarded the skinwalker before him, now a mass of fungi-looking mould that shifted and slowly reformed into a human form that it had consumed. He couldn't kill the skinwalkers, but he could keep them in check. There's no such thing as coincidence, the Matrix Lord said, his voice dangerous. I will direct the Shadow Men to follow the energy signature in the modern day as well as the 18th century. I will grind her down. Send Regalus to observe her movements. I want to know exactly what she's up to and what she knows. Grisilior didn't respond. Instead, he turned and left the room with a look of thunder on his face. Thank you for listening and so that you don't miss an episode of Kaya's journey from Dimensions the Awakening then please follow the podcast K. Arwin Dimensions the book series and for more information on the author check out kayamia.co.uk until next time I leave you with some Atlantean light language Moya.